We thought unemployment fraud was bad in Ohio before last week, but apparently it's even worse. And that's first on our agenda for this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. You're probably listening to this on Friday. Just know we're recording it late Thursday because of scheduling issues. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Chris Wernowski, Laura Johnston. Happy Thursday evening, Friday. <laughs> Happy <laughs> almost Friday. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let us begin. We got hot stuff to talk about. We thought unemployment fraud was terrible before this month. Not just thought, it was. We've heard from a lot of people who say it was. But apparently last week, it got even worse. Jane Cahoon, what happened? Yeah, I guess we. this was our, our week, or last week was our week anyway. Unemployment scammers apparently targeted Ohio to an unprecedented degree last week. And tens of thousands of new claims were flagged as potentially fraudulent. We had last week three times the number of claims. And the, the, this is something they put out every Thursday, the, the new claims from the previous week. So we had more than 140,000 filings. And so far of those filings, 44,848 have been flagged for review. And that number is probably going to grow even more. These these were the traditional claims. In, in the past, we've had way more of the pandemic claims turning out to be fraudulent. But in, but in this case, it was the traditional ones. I guess this has happened in other states where they just suffer these bombardments of claims. Apparently, this happened in Kansas, and they had to shut down their unemployment system recently. The great news here, I'm being sarcastic, is that, of course, this is going to create more delays in processing the legitimate claims. So you know, as you said, we thought it was terrible. Yes, it is terrible, but it's but it's even worse now. So 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 let's recap. We we knew there was some fraud all along, but until I was a victim of fraud and and did some checking and we we asked Laura Hancock to ask at the governor's briefing, no one really knew the scope of this fraud. Where more than half of the pandemic unemployment applications were were flagged for fraud. John Houston, Mike DeWine, even though they were victims, never thought to tell anybody. So so that all came out about, what, a week and a half ago, right? That came out during a yeah. Thursday, a Tuesday briefing when we asked the question. And Houston said, oh my, it's so many, I can't even tell you what the number is. I'll have to get back to you. And then he came back and it was more than half of 1.4 million. So were the scammers watching and then thought, ooh, Ohio's going to get on this. Let's quickly get as much money as we can because they may get on it. I mean, Never fact, underestimate these people working 24-7 in Nigeria, uh, you know, watching what we're doing here. So I wonder, I mean, what the timing of that is fascinating because it was almost immediately after it became publicly known. This is gigantic. It's probably the biggest fraud case in the history of Ohio. Do, do we get the feeling? Jane, that, that Houston and DeWine are treating this like the crisis it is. I mean, we could have hundreds of thousands of criminal cases. All sorts of people can't get their benefits now because they've slowed it down and we've heard from them. All sorts of people can't find out if they've been victims. We've heard from a bunch of them. And we've heard a whole bunch of ways that the scammers are operating. You'd think that the people running the state would be like, oh, my, this is huge. Well, you know, as we know, last week, the governor talked about how he's bringing in these people from the private sector to try to solve the problem. But we haven't heard, you know, what, if any changes they, they've made over there. 
So it's I, the FBI. Where, where, I mean, if this is a national problem of this scope, we're talking millions and millions of dollars. Why isn't there a full scale federal investigation going on to bring people to justice? Chris Warnowski. I mean, there's so many scams that go on. I mean, do you want the government to look into the people that are trying to get your social security number pretending to be the IRS or the ones that are trying to sell you bogus car warranties or whatever? I mean, it's it's to get a handle on scams like this it would take probably a complete separate branch of law enforcement. <laughs> okay, and, yeah. it's it's what is it, Jane? Three hundred thirty million that we know has been paid. Three hundred thirty million in the PUA claims. In the traditional, it's about. $2.3 million for about 2,200 fraudulent claims. Okay. So there's a big disparity there. So, so Chris Vernaski, I walk into the Federal Reserve Bank and I walk out with $330 million. I'm pretty sure there's going to be a big federal investigation. And this is just Ohio. You know, across the land, it's billions. Yeah, I think I think Jeremy's story, Jeremy Pelzer's story yesterday said 63 billion. That was like a rough guess and it could probably be a lot more, you know, across the country. Again, we we have ignored the infrastructure that that we need to exist to, in, in order to make this more difficult to do, to make it more difficult to carry out. I mean, look, again, I hammer this a lot, but you're talking about a state that is run by a political party that has undermined these systems for years. And their only answer to it is, well, we hired some private company to come in and do it. Somebody asked a really pointed question either last week or a week ago, which is, why isn't the government hiring the right people to do this stuff? Not the right companies, but there seems to be a complete brain drain of people within the government who are responsible for this, who who can't seem to wrap their head around the gravity of it, or who say, well... You know, people are just going to have to be patient or we're not the only state that's dealing with this or, well, it's a criminal enterprise. It's those aren't answers to the questions that people are asking about this. People want to know, when can I buy groceries? When can I pay my rent? Well, when, and it's 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 becoming it's, clear that they're in over their heads on this. And well, it's partially because they have stripped these agencies ability to deal with these things in house on purpose. They have right, undermined I, their own government. I've been hearing from people that are making that point, that the government, by cutting costs and doing what it does, they've undermined it. I'm also here. You say people are asking, when can I buy groceries? What really has come through this week with the undercounting of the coronavirus deaths in Ohio by 4,000 and this incredible unemployment scam is messages from people saying nothing is working. I mean, they can't count the number of deaths. They can't get unemployment fixed 11 months in. And people are seeing this as a total failure of their government, and they're really frustrated, saying exactly what you've been saying. Maybe they've been listening to you, Chris, and they're screaming into the void here. But I, I, I just like, let me make, I, sorry, I don't want to make too many points here, but you see this happen. I mean, just today we reported that they're cutting transit again. And it's like, you know, and then in, in a few years, we're going to say, well, transit's broken. And it's like, yeah, you keep underfunding it. It's right, never going to work if you don't fund these things right. You're getting ahead of the questions. Can't get ahead of the questions. There's a limited number of questions. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Where does Ohio rank in the number of extremist activist groups of the ilk that tried to overthrow the government on January 6th? And what's the latest about one activist in particular from Ohio and how she was taking her orders from Donald Trump? Chris Ranowski, both angles of this are frankly kind of terrifying. Take us through them. Well, it is kind of a, a one-two punch. I don't I don't think people view Ohio 
as as a place that has a lot of extremist activity. But according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a nonprofit that tracks things like this and has done so for over a half a century, the state of Ohio is is about almost at the top of that list. I believe we're the second most extremist population in the United States of America. And it's frankly, you're right. It's very, very alarming. And in an interview with Cleveland.com, the director of the SPLC um, said that, you know, a lot of it is is similar to to what is happening and what you're seeing around the country, which is you have a lot of young people in Ohio and elsewhere who, who feel very frustrated, isolated, lacking in community support. And sometimes that community comes in the way of online anti-government or hate groups. I mean, it's almost a similar thing to how religion becomes a community in some places. You know, I lived in the South and if you didn't go to a certain church, you know, it, it, you know, that was, that was where you went to socialize on Sunday for a lot of people. And, and the way that this sort of manifest is, is, is sort of illustrated in another story that we did today, which released more information about an Ohio bartender who we've written about before by the name of Jessica Watkins, who was a part of the Capitol insurrection on January 6th. And the filings provide a lot of detail into the mindset of of her and these other people who are part of an extremist, I would call it paramilitary group known as the Oath Keepers, which is made up of a lot of former military members, ex-police officers, and and just regular people. And, and the story that we got through the court filings that were put in today that, that John Coniglia did basically say that she believed that she was taking orders directly from the president of the United States, you know, that it they got were pretty detailed about it though. I mean, it was almost like, I don't, I, I won't believe this is real. It might be fake unless I hear it from him directly. I mean, it was pretty specific. right. And that, and you know, and that sort of, that cues really closely to uh, the way that QAnon believed that Donald Trump was going to be the person that came out and, and you know, got all these pedophiles out of the government or whatever harebrained thing it meant. And what's what's weird, and I don't think what we reported in either of these stories, but I read a lot about this topic, is that these paramilitary groups like the Oath Keepers are appealing to people in the QAnon sect who, after the election, were kind of left disillusioned because what they believed did not did not happen and but, so but the details on this specific woman were were pretty pretty scary because she was talking about her willingness to die to keep Donald Trump as president and yeah. she was waiting for orders from Donald president she even used a, a term for it right did she call it the insurrection or did she 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 had a name for what she saw as this organized effort and then they have recordings of her talking to other people about their maneuvering through the capitol it's uh, I mean, this was somebody, if they could have gotten away with it, they would have kidnapped members of Congress to stop the government from moving forward. Right. I, I let me I'm just going to read this quote from from the filing. It says in this backdrop, Watkins and her co-conspirators formed a subset of the most extreme insurgents that plotted and then tried to execute a sophisticated plan to forcibly stop the results of the presidential election from taking effect. It alleges that basically they were there to kidnap lawmakers and that they were there. She said that Trump wanted able-bodied patriots to come and that she would hate to miss it. And there's a lot in here and it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's very, it's very staggering and it's disturbing. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it, it's really scary. And, and it really illustrates just how far 
far down people have fallen in this. I mean, it's it's and they're and the full filing is intended to keep her behind bars until trial, right? They're like correct. Look at this, all this was information. Let's not have her walking around free, right? And and again, bond is not punishment or anything like that. But but this is this is somebody who confirmed that she was a dues paying member of the Oath Keepers. That just ready I, to I, there's so violence. much. Yeah, ready to commit violence in the full belief that their lives would, they would suffer under Joe Biden, that she said that we already feel like our neck is in the news. I mean, it's just really disturbing extremist language here. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine proposing to seriously slash away the money that goes to public transportation in Ohio? Laura Johnson and Tobias put together a fascinating story just about how much they want to cut the money that goes to public transit so that they can maintain the highways for all the people that drive cars. What are the numbers and what's the justification? Yeah, this is like a fire sale. So DeWine's budget proposal for 2022 and 2023 would cut the annual state funding for public transit agencies across the state to $7.3 million dollars. That compares to the original $70 million a year approved for the current budget. That was cut down to $63 million for the fiscal year as part of all the coronavirus cuts. Still, so that's like a 90% cut. The Ohio Department of Transportation said that this number reflects what the state historically has spent on public transit, which is a very little amount of money, and that it reflects budget realities. The state wants to spend the money on highway maintenance and construction, which, by the way, we just reported got a D on an Ohio infrastructure report card. So obviously DeWine's directing money elsewhere in this budget, like we're going to talk about at some point, $50 million on a campaign to get people to move to Ohio. But you would think those people would generally value rapid transit. Yeah, and Ohio has a terrible record with transit compared to other states. In Cleveland, RTA does get a bunch of money, the bulk of its money from a sales tax, but the rest of the state doesn't have that benefit. I And I get that that times are tight and they, they have to be careful in where they spend the money. It just does seem, like you said, you're trying to get people to move here because we're cool and progressive and we're putting all our money into building highways. It's It just seems like there's a... Yeah. And RTA has been talking about whether they should even get rid of fares because it costs them so much money to collect the fares. And so I feel like they've been kind of trying to figure out how to get more people to ride and they've used some of this federal CARES money to buy buses and, you know, improve bus shelters and make people want to ride more. But they can't do anything to make the system better if they literally have no money. All right. Well, we'll count on the legislature, which has been showing lots of common sense and good judgment of late. <laughs> to fix Could this I problem. jump in here for a second? Jane Cohen, go ahead. You know, that $70 million that they got in the last budget, it was a result of the Democrats having some clout and they were able to get that in the budget. I think that's when when things were kind of a little honeymoon they had maybe with Larry Householder after they after some Democrats helped him become House Speaker. But um, oh, he could operate his scam to give billions of dollars. To <laughs> we should just energy. get First Energy to sponsor the rapid transit. Yeah. I mean, he did so a really, that would almost even out. <laughs> the seventy million—it's slightly more than First Energy spent to get all of those billions directed their way. Way to go, Larry Householder and the Democrats. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Do we have any more information about how Ohio overlooked fully a quarter of its coronavirus deaths, 4,000 of them in its counting? Jane Coon, we talked about this in our previous episode. I still have just no understanding of how this could happen. 
And I was a little bit surprised at the lack of discussion of it in the briefing today. But apparently there was a different briefing, which we were excluded from, where some explaining was done. Yeah, and we're catching up with that. That was a uh, a mix-up, apparently. But apparently this came down to one employee in the Ohio Department of Health who got stuck with the job of cross-checking all of these deaths between two databases. One is the infectious disease database, the Ohio Disease Reporting System, and that, that comes from hospitals and health districts, et cetera. Then there's the electronic death registry system, which is, that's from funeral homes and others, um, and, they, and they come with the death certificate signed by a physician. So that particular database, you know, could take up to six months to get these in. And so they have to reconcile the two and make sure they don't have any duplicates and so forth. But apparently one person was doing this. And during this surge of cases that they had, that apparently the person just couldn't keep up. And apparently no one really noticed. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I mean, that maybe it's me. That sounds ridiculous. We work in a a room. It does sound ridiculous. That's what they said. If it, last year we had a, a you know a modern record for homicides and we have largely one reporter that does the tracking of that, but if all of a sudden we had noticed you know after a month that that the numbers seemed to stop going up, I think other people would have looked. There's never one person. That person has a supervisor, and that supervisor has a supervisor. That just doesn't pass the sniff test. Is that almost scapegoating? Yeah. Whatever happened to where the buck stops? I mean. Yeah. If, if, if and I, you know, we're we're talking about accountability here, like, and we asked that question at the briefing, is anyone being held accountable? I don't know if this one employee should be held accountable. It should be like, why did you stick one employee with all this? I mean, I think the buck, you know, goes right. further, further up the line there for this. Right. The person that designed a ridiculous system is as culpable as the person that was put into the untenable situation. And did DeWine talk about this or did he have others talk about it? Well, he talked about it and he did have director Stephanie McLeod on there talking about, you know, we and we asked the accountability question and she said, oh, they're investigating and they're reviewing their procedures. But she just can't say any anything more about that until they investigate further. Yeah, DeWine didn't didn't really answer that directly either. It was really kind of glossed over. Did he offer even the slightest amount of dismay that we could get it wrong for so long? I didn't hear any like, gee, we're sorry. This is Laura Johnston. He just kept saying reconciliation. And I kept thinking of like a Catholic church confession. (laughs) Or like truth and reconciliation. But but I think what I can say like there was there was one moment which was kind of interesting where one of the reporters, I forget who it was, asked him, you know, whether knowledge of these additional 4000 deaths would have meant he would have made any different decisions as far as opening things or whatnot. And he said, no, I mean, he just well, said no. I, I can tell you because I've heard from a bunch of people on this today that there's a lot of suspicion there. You know, I was asked, do you think that there's an overwhelming number of nursing home deaths in there? And that one of the reasons it was undercounted was to hide the problem. Other people wondered if there are minority populations in this 4,000 that have a, a big percentage of it. So our plan is when we can get the data to analyze those 4,000 to see if there might be a reason that they were overlooked because the reasons they're giving us for how this happened 
sound pretty hard to fathom. I, I don't think they give us certain breakdowns of, of demographics but, or things. But the, Rich Exner collected all the demographic <laughs> breakdowns before they added them in. So he'll be able to do it. We were already talking today. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What does it mean that the Ohio coronavirus curfew is officially over? Chris Wernowski, this was one of the pieces of news that came out of the governor's latest briefing. The rules that we're supposed to stay home from 10 to morning or from 11 to morning when he fixed it. It's over. What's that mean? It means you can party. It means you can go out and party now. No. It, it it does mean that because our coronavirus-related hospitalizations dropped, the Dwight administration believes that they no longer need to have the curfew that they had placed on on people as far as, as you know, it, started, it originally started at 10 p.m. and ended at 5 a.m. And the idea behind it was to sort of stop the transmission when some of the riskiest behaviors occur as people impaired by alcohol were not as vigilant about social distancing and wearing masks. The curfew had a ton of exemptions for people who had to work or who had to take care of family members and stuff like that. You know, he he shortened it a few weeks ago, uh, thanks to the hospitalizations dropping below uh, 3,500. Uh, now that they're below uh, 2,500 for, I think it was seven day, a seven-day period, he, he basically said that we don't need it anymore. It sounds like most of what he's done was public relations anyway. I don't, I'd never heard of anybody being arrested and we're at a point now where we all know what we're supposed to do. You're supposed to wear a mask. You're supposed to socially distance yourself from others. Some follow those rules. Others don't follow those rules. And it doesn't really matter that the rules exist once everybody understands them and makes that decision. Do, do, did he say he could bring it back? I mean, he can always bring. Yeah. I mean, he can bring it back. But, I, I you know, I just wonder if, if it might be worth keeping it a few more weeks so we can get even lower. But. My, I think the big concern here is that people hearing this are going to use it as a as license to, you know, go out and, and, and be a, a little more careless. But, you I don't know, know, man, this it's is really cold outside. If you're going to lift the curve, <laughs> you lift it when it's going to be three degrees. But they reopened all the casinos to 24 hours now. They immediately announced that. This is Jane Cahoon. Wow. Sorry. I didn't yeah. miss that. That's interesting. We'll have to, this is Laura Johnson. We'll have to comb Twitter on Monday morning to see all the bad behavior photos. <laughs> it's going to be cold. So they're not going to be outside. Okay. No, you're they'll be inside. You're listening to this week in the CLE. It's a little premature to ask, but how would Ohio's $50 million campaign work to attract people from elsewhere to move to this state? Laura Johnson, we had Susan Glazer take a look at this, and it, there's some speculation by people because this money's not approved by the legislature yet, let alone how it will go. But what did we find out? Yeah, so the idea is the legislature has to approve it, and we're not sure what tourism Ohio would go for, but they want to promote the state to visitors, and they maybe be... Oh, wait, wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. I thought it wasn't visitors. I thought it, this well, was to get it would people be to move here. True, it is to get people to move here, but it's tourism Ohio... That, that is doing it. So they say it fits with it because they want people to come visit Ohio and they want them to stay. The idea would be they'd be promoting the state's low cost of living, their natural and cultural amenities, universities, sports teams, small towns, and big cities. They could start as soon as this summer. So the people they are targeting are people who used to live here, people with family here, people who re recently visited here or went to school here. This is all called talent attraction. It's a trend in recent years. No longer do you want to just attract a business to your state. You want to attract the right kind of employees who want to work in Ohio. So um, they've done some surveys already. And people, I guess, look at cost of living, housing availability, quality health care, 
a welcoming local population and climate, we may lose a little points on the climate. Only in January and <laughs> February. Maybe after that, not so much. But yeah, the can, climate will kill us. Chris Ranowski. Can I point out a few places where we might lose some points in tourism here and, and getting people to move here? It's not um, tourism. We should, have, we should have some slogans that are like, you know, come to Ohio. We have more extremists than almost every other state. Uh, <laughs> but the most extreme state is actually California. So, like, I, I think it's just people-based, right? Right. It, it's not, and maybe they'll think the extreme means the X Games or something like that. I, you know, if you if you love transit cuts, come to come to Ohio. Well, you so can walk. Susan Glaser, she did a really interesting kind of other story on this about if people move to progressive states. Because last week, if you remember, DeWine got some flack for saying Ohio was progressive. But the the highest growth states in the United States are like Idaho, Arizona, Utah, Texas. They're not the most progressive places. And the biggest exodus is from places like New York, California, and Illinois. So apparently you don't have to have a progressive state to lure people to you. But what's interesting about that, though, is if you look at the Senate race in Georgia or the political shift in places like Arizona, it's because of that. The reason that our our state is becoming redder is because people are leaving our state and going to those states. And and so, you know, the, that demographic shift plays into so all of We just got to reverse the trend, you know. <laughs> By cutting matter. transit and having the most extremist groups in the right. country. You're Stand your ground in Ohio. <laughs> You're listening to this week in the daily. <laughs> Let's end the week on a fun note. Tina Turner finally gets her due with the nomination as a solo act for the Rock Hall. Who else is in this year's class of nominees? And has the Hall finally figured out that women are a major part of rock history? Laura Johnson, I'm going to go to you on this because you're not only you're our sports expert, you're our popular <laughs> music expert. Oh my God, no. <laughs> but I am very excited that of the 16 nominees, seven this year are women. That is the most ever. It is also the most racially diverse group in 15 years. So you got to give the Rock Hall a little credit for this. The full list includes Jay-Z, the Foo Fighters, Tina Turner, Iron Maiden, Mary J. Blige, Kate Bush, Devo, The Go-Go's, Shaka Khan, Carol King, Vela Cootie, LL Cool J, New York Dolls, Rage Against the Machine, Todd Rundgren, and Dionne Warwick. So Rock Hall is citing their diversity. They say it, it represents the depth of the artists and the musical that the Rock Hall celebrates. Obviously, you have to be eligible. You have artists have to be 25 years after the release of their first official recording. So the first time that Jay-Z and the Foo Fighters are actually eligible is this ballot. A couple of things to note. There's no Pat Benatar, who was on the list last year. And it snubs Dave Matthews Band, which is a favorite of my generation, despite the fact that DMB was nominated in 2020 and won the annual fan vote. But um, Troy Smith actually ranked all of these uh, artists gave Tina Turner the number one spot for most deserving to be in the Rock Hall. Yeah, I, I've never understood why she hasn't been nominated every year before this. But but you do wonder if it's the disappearance of Jan Wenner from the whole Rock Hall scene that now allows women to get nominated because, you know, there were some questions about his treatment of them back in the day. They've, they, we should point out the Rock Hall has been pounded every year for not having more women nominated. And Last year was another kind of surprise because they had been taking so much flack and they still had a male-dominated ballot. Chris Ranowski, you're going to say something. Yeah, as a, as a music nerd, I think this is a really great batch of, of nominees. I think, you know, the, the Foo Fighters feel like a shoe-in because Dave Grohl's from Ohio. And, 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 and really, I mean, sort of the poster child of like the last rock star. I think 
it would be really cool to see people have to to revisit the the catalog of someone like Kate Bush, who's great. But but the fact I did not realize Tina Turner was not in that, and that is a that is a high crime as know? a solo I, act, right? She's as in a solo with act. Ike. She's with yeah. she's in with Ike, but I mean, you know, to 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 go away the way that she did and to come back the way that she did is astounding. And you know, I, I mean, her work with Ike was great too. And 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 you had the the recent death of, of Phil Spector who she worked with on a, on some really great songs. I mean, you, you, you know, I'm, I'm glad that her contribution was recognized as everybody was trying to crap on Phil Spector for being a horrible monster because there was a lot of good music that came out of that despite all of that stuff. And, and some of hers was in there. And, and so it's, it's great to see her get a nod. She's, yeah, she's this, truly this, amazing. I know. So who, I, who's she your favorite been on there? Ago. Wait, wait, who, the sad thing is that they didn't nominate her before she stopped performing. She said she'll, I was talking to Mike Norman and he said that she'll never perform again. She might come to accept it, but we wouldn't get to see her perform. It's too bad they didn't do it before she stopped performing. Laura Johnston. I was going to say, who's your favorite? I mean, I know who Chris Quinn's favorite is on this. List. Oh, I, I, I gotta be honest. I have a real soft spot in my heart for Dionne Warwick. All of her Burt Bacharach and Hal David songs are, are just so different than anything that was being put out when she originally recorded them. And I think she's largely overlooked in the, the, the great sort of girl group era of, of rock and roll. And she had a long career. Yeah. And I, I just go back and, and, and I mean, go on Apple music or, or Spotify and find an essentials playlist to hers. You'll be stunned at the songs that she sang and her partnership. I mean, you talk about a three, three people who met each other all at the, like they were all together at the right time in all of their careers. It's just a lot of really great songs. And, and I know it's like, I know it probably didn't seem like I was going to say Dia Warwick, but I, I love her. <laughs> no, that, <laughs> that's, that's a great way to wrap it up. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody that listens to this week in the CLE. Have a great weekend. Come on back. We'll be talking about the news again on Monday. 